In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message is a kind of a heavy one, even though I try to keep the subjects positive and do my best to keep on a high level of thinking and living. This message I speak to you scripturally with the right attitude. So let me, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege you give me of taking the word of God to the people of God for this opportunity of sharing it and sharing from it, how we can relate to it where we are and where we live. So help us in the next few minutes, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, as we seek your help and the gift of your Holy Spirit to help keep us pure in an impure world. Help us as your people to make the needed changes as we share together from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's not an easy task for us to live a pure life in an impure world. This is an area in which we have a lot of battles, a lot of tension. This is a message that is so desperately needed today. In your sermon notes that are provided for you, I would like you to write down a word that comes to your mind when you think of the word holiness. I want you to write down a word picture, a mental picture, when you think of the subject of holiness. Please do that right now. You probably have many different pictures that you're writing down. That's okay. For some of you, you may be thinking of, say, a mystic, someone with a long robe and a long beard and sandals and spends most of his time isolated with very little touch with our real, real world. Some of you, the word holiness makes you think only of having no fun, no jokes, no friends, one who doesn't enjoy life. He's always, always serious. Others of you may feel a lot of frustration. I should live a better life. I should live a holy life. But it seems so unattainable. It just seems out of reach. So regardless of what you think of in the area of holiness or the mental picture that you form, I want to talk to you about it today. I want to talk about holiness and holy living, especially in the arena of keeping our sexual lives pure and holy before God. So Chuck Colson gives a marvelous definition of holiness when he writes in your notes, Holiness is the everyday busyness of every Christian. It evidences in the decisions that we make and the things that we do hour by hour and day by day. So the need for this message is not something that has just happened in the last 10 years. How to keep pure in an impure world is a message that is universal, has never known a time when it was not relevant. Looking at Habakkuk 1, verses 2 and 4, Habakkuk complains in the 6th century already, B.C., how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, and you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflicts abound. Therefore, the law is... Paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. 
So those words were written actually 25 centuries ago. Sounds like they could be written in our society today. Listen also to Jeremiah's complaint. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. They will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. A Bible scholar who spent years studying the 5th and the 6th centuries B.C. gave us the top five issues of concern 25 centuries ago. Do you know what those top five issues were of those people of the 5th century? In your notes, number one, the imminent outbreak of international hostility. Number two, in your notes, the breakup of homes. Number three, the rebellion of youth, especially lack of respect for their parents. Now, that's 25 centuries ago. Number four, the corruption of politics. And number five, chuck holes in public roads. Does anything really change? Some history buffs say that history doesn't repeat itself. Can't make a believer out of me. Some 20 years ago, I read a book by Dr. Carl Menninger. It was one of those books that literally changes a person's life. It was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. It's a classic. He writes a very significant paragraph in your notes. In the discussion of sin and the sin of lust, we have to allow for a considerable shift in the social code during the past century. It has been called a revolution. Perhaps it is. Many forms of sexual activity, which for centuries were considered immoral and sinful anywhere, and their public exhibition simply anathema, are now talked about, they're written about, they're exhibited on stage and on the screen. Next, I want to share with you a history of sex. So in your notes, number one, a history of sex says sex is a gift of God. Physical intimacy with the opposite sex, from the slightest touch of the hand to the complete physical union, is the one of God's gifts to man. So in your notes, we must as Christians believe sex is a great gift of God. When sin entered the world, it corrupted all things. It corrupted relationships also between the sexes. But when the awe was redeemed by Christ's work of crucifixion and resurrection, the relationship between the sexes was included in that awe. So it's important to note that Christ became incarnate in the flesh, that it's much more than just taking on the physical, that he might be tested in all things as we are, and yet without sin. If we fail to see and fail to believe that the gift of sex was first corrupted in the fall, but secondly also redeemed in the crucifixion, there is little hope that we will ever receive the fullness that God intends for us in this gift. To fail to see it as having been affected, seriously affected, first of all by sin, and secondly by the forgiveness of sins, is fail to look upon sex as God himself looks upon it. 
So while the relationship between the sexes is one of God's highest gifts, and it will not remain long if, we, if it is looked at, not looked upon, or is, if it is looked upon as the highest of all gifts. Look, on the back of your notes, we continue. We must, as Christians, also believe sex is not the greatest gift of God. We must be quick to confess that we often think and we even act as though it was the greatest gift that God has given to us. Like, you hear, this, this thing is bigger than both of us. It's often the clarion call or the bill of rights for going the whole way. We sometimes demand that God give us the gift of physical intimacy. Give it to us right now. I'm just that kind of person we hear. My passions must be satisfied. And we forget we forget that we cannot demand this gift or any gift from God, or else it is no longer a gift. You see, the physical gifts are not only gifts, God, for courtship and for marriages, but are just one of many, many gifts that God gives. For example, how about the gift of conversation? Even if your spouse, your girlfriend, cannot understand the details of your job with high tech, it might be helpful to listen to what she does understand. Can you use the gift of conversation profitably and in an adult manner for longer than three minutes without having to resort to the physical to keep your relationship going? In the newspaper a few weeks ago was the account of a 10-year-old girl who was going to have a baby with her 24-year-old boyfriend. And the father of the girl was apparently consenting. That's a sign of our times and also what happened to the subject of sex, even in Paul's day. And I believe that in our own congregation, there are people who are being tempted sexually, as we are all tempted. So look at the message of Paul on sex from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and 4. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And it's God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him, because the Lord will punish men for all such sins. As we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to impurity, but to live a holy life, Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you this Holy Spirit. So three words I want you to take with you. First of all, Paul says, number one, abstain. Abstain from immorality. We're to avoid sexual immorality. For you and I to avoid immorality, this is not something you just say, I'll pray about it. People will come to me and say, yeah, we're really in love with this person. I'm living with her now, and I just need to pray about it. My thought is, no, you don't need just to pray about it. 
You should obey the clear word of God. You should abstain from immorality. Sexual immorality is like adultery, fornication, is living with someone outside of the marriage relationship. To abstain does not mean just to be discreet either. Does not mean to have safe sex. Does not even mean for two consenting adults. Mutual consent to that which is evil does not make the evil good. It does not even mean to be sure that you're really, really in love. Gallup took a poll. It indicated that there were not much difference between the conduct of believers and people who are not believers in the area of sexual immorality. See, when you ask, why are we not as Christians winning the world for Christ today, when there is not something beautiful and special about the Christian relationship between a man and a woman, clearly modeled by the Christians in their lives. Secondly, Paul says we are to number two, battle against lust. So you abstain from immorality. You battle against lust. This battle is not a battle that is over when you get 50 or 60 either. If that's when you get old, whatever that's getting old is. This is not even a battle that is over when you get married. A wife and a husband also doesn't put an end to their battle for lust. This is not a battle that is over if you're single and celibate and don't ever plan to get married. This is not a battle that is over when you become a Christian, for example. This is not a battle that is over when you enter a ministry. Some will say that if only they would be a pastor, if only they'd be a teacher, then I could win this battle against lust. No, we, we know. In our world today, there are even too many pastors and churches who have fallen into sexual immorality, leaving the church and leaving their families. A survey of 100 pastors who had fallen into sexual immorality indicated they thought it would never happen to them. So Paul says that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. So Paul says that we as Christians are to control, we're to discipline our bodies and learn how they function, understanding our weaknesses and our strength, and then gain mastery over how we live a life of purity rather than yielding to lustful passions. For some, that means we do not have some magazines around. For some, that means we do not see certain movies. For some, that means that we do not go to certain places. We don't listen to some songs, and we don't get involved in some conversations. We each have weak areas. We need to discipline our lives. Thirdly, Paul writes, number three, a third word in your notes. Excel in your walk. Here Paul is talking about more than just praying about it. We must know the weak areas and plan that we can walk the high road of sexual purity. Paul says this about our Christian walk. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in your for fact you are doing. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So we are to excel. We are to have an excellent walk. We're not to drift along with the average. Today, the average morals are destructive and fall far short of what is really pleasing to God. 
So I want you to understand that God loves each of us. He understands our weaknesses in redeeming us through the precious blood of his son, Jesus, on the cross. God wants each of us to excel in our Christian walk. So in conclusion, in your notes, take home with you today a history of sex, because it is a gift of God. Yes, it was affected by man's fall into sin and was corrupted, and yet was also affected totally by the suffering, the death, and the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Then take home with you Paul's words on sex, three of them. Number one, abstain. Abstain from immorality. Number two, battle. Battle against lust. And number three, excel. Excel in your walk as a Christian. Listen to this poem entitled The Father's Name. Your name is very, very valuable. You got it from your father. Maybe it's all that he had to give. But it's yours to use and cherish for as long as you live. You may lose the watch he gave you. It can always be replaced. But the black mark on your name, son, can never be erased. So guard it very closely, because after all is said and done, you'll be glad the name is spotless when you give it to your son. Amen.